Welcome to BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank Inc. and our distribution partner, Construction Instruction. Our conversations aim to be the catalyst for innovation, a meeting place for ideas, and the driving force to take sustainable building practices to mainstream building. There's no doubt that Enrico Bonolari is a passionate advocate for performance-based passive house construction. He has recently researched and published a white paper report comparing 12 building standards used in the United States, which concludes that current building codes and building programs fail to deliver resilient and healthy buildings for their occupants. His conclusions are the result of modeling 50 homes to determine the minimum compliance requirements in each of the 12 building standards using the Passive House Planning Package software. Enrico boils his thoughts down to why passive house performance-based construction should be widely adopted by stating in his paper that one of the greatest challenges the American construction industry faces is to start setting specific goals to how buildings perform. This is instead of setting prescriptive requirements for individual building components. We see all the time that builders just want to be told what to do prescriptively. If instead we concentrate on what we must do to perform, would we be in a better place? I don't know, but we'll figure it out together through my conversations with Enrico Bonolari of Emo Passive. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the BuildCast. Today I have Enrico Bonolari, a true Italian here in the United States, uh, doing some wonderful work with EMU Building Systems and Building Science and Building Passive, I guess. All those titles uh, apply here. Uh, Enrico has just completed a report and released a report on the performance of 12 building standards in our modern building world uh, today. So welcome so much to join us Enrico, and how are you today? Thank you, Robin. I am excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. I think before we get too far down the road, uh, we need to go backwards a little bit and understand your background. Uh, so can you, how did you get interested in building and building science? And then specifically, how did you get interested in building passive? So I'm an actor by training. I'm still registered back home in Italy, although ever since we moved the company to Colorado back in 2016, we no longer practice architecture. But throughout school and throughout my upbringing, so to speak, professionally, I've always been interested in construction technology and how to make details that work for the science, but also that they are easy to do for the trades on site. So always big focus on construction. And we came across Passive House back in 2010-ish, 2009-2010. And we found the science to determine how much to insulate, what kind of window package you needed, based on comfort, uh, condensation avoidance, as well as energy efficiency. So this is something I remind our clients and our builders about. I'm an architect by training, so I tend to look at the building as a whole not just focus on the energy. But that is how we got to Passive House. And we developed this study because we've been teaching builders in the US for seven years now about Passive House specifically. And you know, there's different climate zones, there's different building standards, there's different code requirements. So we always have to make things relatable. Uh, so like Joe from California needs to talk about Title 24 as their baseline. Whereas Denver, we have Jane using the 2021 IECC versus New York is in a different code. So we had to relate the latest building science, which is Passive House, to a common language, basically. That is how we developed this study. Great. Did somebody uh, sponsor the study or you, do you just decide to do it? We just decided to do it. In fact, this started off as a short, quick Instagram post in in the summer of 2021. Okay. <laughs> and it kind of went long. So we never posted that Instagram post. I wanted to compare the volume-specific ACH50 requirement for the air tightness of a building to 
the surface related uh, requirement that for example fuels uses yeah and you you cannot translate one to the other because it's the translation or conversion is specific to a single project so we we selected 50 of our consulting projects to make this analysis and then we expanded that on comfort looking at the energy performance and other parameters yeah uh, just because I'm interested and have been working in the, the code arena for a while now and have tried to introduce the CFM per square foot of dwelling enclosure area metric into mm -hmm. the code uh, because it's not specifically because it's not a volumetric measurement. Uh, is there one of the measurements that you like better? And if so, why? Uh, that's a good question. I so there are two different ways to measure the same parameter, and they both, in my opinion, have the pros and cons. I think the volumetric can be very penalizing for very small buildings, and so the surface related may be more not necessarily accurate but more realistic in depicting the air tightness level of a small building, but. You know, if you look at how a building performs, geometry is a very, very big thing. So if an architect designs a very complex, non-compact shape, that building is going to be very expensive. It's also not going to perform very well. It's also going to have a very high allowance for air leakage with the surface-related parameter. So I appreciate both of them. I think they both have the downside. For the uh, com for comparison, the volumetric is a piece of cake to meet in very large buildings. So yeah. neither of them are, are perfect. Yeah, wouldn't the uh, CFM per square foot metric work for large buildings as well, depending on what what you set the metric the compliance number to be at? It will be more strict. For larger yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, so my, it, could, my... it could work for all building types, depending on where you actually set the the number. Yeah, yeah. Number. My, to to rephrase myself, my critique towards the surface area related one is that if you have a very complex shape, that shape is allowed to leak more if you have the surface related because you have a, a higher allowance. That is the one critique I have uh, for that metric, but they're both good. Okay. Yeah. So you you began the study by thinking about air leakage, and so I'm wondering what else caused you to undertake the study and the investigation of the ability of the ability of building standards to deliver resilient, healthy, and efficient buildings. Well. We have started doing a lot of training in California, for example, and California climate is pretty mild. And Title 24 has a name or a fame to be so environmentally friendly and so strict and so forth. So I honestly took this as a chance for me to dive into California Title 24 and see, comparing it apples to apples as much as I could to the possible standard. And what I found is that to me, the Title 24 is kind of a half done job because it addresses ventilation. It requires a high filtration grade. They require MERV 13 for filtration, but they have zero requirement for air leakage. You can have, you can stick your hand through your wall, but your filter has to be a MERV 13. <laughs> yeah. So that is to me kind of inconsistent. So yeah. I dug into that. Uh, dug into what each standard requires for filtration, for air leakage, and I'm, I learned a lot in the process. Great. So what were the 12 standards that you were looking at? Well, I hope I can remember them all. We started off with the 2018 IECC, and we used that as the baseline for all comparisons. Then we looked at the 2021 IECC update and the draft of the 2024 IECC. 
Then we looked at the California Title 24, the latest. I don't know if they have a specific code for that. Then the Energy Star version 3.2 and the DOE Zero Energy Ready version 2. Fuse, we looked at the 2015 more for a baseline, but really the 2018 and 2021 performance based, as well as the 2021 Fuse prescriptive, as well as the PHI low energy building and PHI passive house. I hope I got them all. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't counting, but that's uh, that's an extensive uh, amount of things to look at. Yes. So you were saying that you used the 2018 IECC as the baseline. How did you structure the study uh, with these different standards to be able to compare them? Yes. So we had, we, EMU, our company, Half of what we do is build a training specifically for passive house. The other half is we consult on projects where our builders need help. And of those projects, we selected 50, 50 single family home projects, new construction to be our pool of projects to use in this study. And we selected them on purpose to be kind of balanced between different climate zones. A quarter of them is in warm and hot climate zones. A quarter of them is in cold climate zones and, and the half is kind of in the middle. And we took the energy models that we developed in PHPP for each of them, set them to the minimum of the 2018 IECC prescriptive, then upgraded that to the 2021, then to the 2024 IECC. Then basically we modeled each standard so we have about 600 energy models or something short of that to, to base this comparison on yeah interesting so you're basing it on the compliant the minimum re compliance requirements Correct. Uh, of the 2018 iecc compared to the requirements the minimum requirements of each of the programs that you evaluated Correct. In fact, in the study, which is available for free download, by the way, we have a whole very long appendix that lists for each project what assumptions we had for each standard that we model in terms of insulation, windows, air leakage, uh, heat recovery ventilation, because it's a very, apples to apples is a very difficult comparison, but we try to be as consistent as, as we could. Okay. And then, it looks like you were trying to evaluate these programs' ability to create uh, resilient, healthy, and efficient buildings. So, how do you define? How did you define resilient, healthy, and efficient? For this that study? is a great question. Uh, so, there are different metrics that we can that we teach and that we can use to define thermal comfort, for example the surface temperature on windows and doors, lack of drafts and a few other parameters. Same for resilience and durability. So resilience and durability, we looked at the air tightness level of the building envelope, the amount of insulation, so to speak, in case the building uh, had, had a failing grid or a failing heating system. So for each of these categories, we identified a few metrics and we followed the latest standards for either ASHRAE or the European equivalent to, to evaluate indoor air quality, thermal comfort, uh, resiliency, and so forth. In other words, I, I didn't want the study to only be about energy. So I wanted to get something about the environmental quality because I'm an active by training. And in, in my view, buildings are there to protect people. Okay. So let's start with resiliency, I guess. Uh, part of what you mentioned was durability. Yes. Uh, so I, I'm thinking about how long a house should last. Mm -hmm. uh, should it be that 100-year-old house? But I think you're also talking about the ability for uh, the occupants in the house to uh, maintain their life during a power outage or a severe weather cool. event. Specifically, how are those things evaluated in the study? So in terms of durability, uh, there are a couple of parameters for 
condensation avoidance. Condensation causes uh, structural damages. And the building code is good at addressing the interstitial condensation that happens inside the wall. It does not do much with condensation that can happen on the interior surface. And we explain different standards to evaluate that. And we compared PHI and fuse were the only standard that really enforced that. With regards to resiliency and the ability of a building to remain livable and comfortable in case of a power outage, we have empirical knowledge from that, from the icebox challenge, for example, as well, that is, you know, you have an insulated mock-up house that you put a ton of ice inside and after a couple of weeks, you measure how much ice is left. So it's the ability of the house to keep the cool, so to speak. In our training, we have participants assemble a mini passive house and we heat them up and the ones that, that stays warm the longest wins. So that is the opposite. It's the ability of the building to keep the warm. So we have those uh, and we measure that every single time we do a workshop. In the, in the study, I made up a parameter called the inclusive R value. Uh, which is made up. I, I just had to find a way to compare these standards. And the inclusive R, R value is basically the inverse of the heating load, uh, because at the end of the day, the higher the heating load, the quicker the building responds to an, an exterior change. And I calculated that basically the median and average for each project and each building standard, and it's through this inclusive R value that I evaluated the building standard. Now, inclusive, it is inclusive of the effective R values. So your insulation plus your stud, for example. It's also inclusive of your windows. It's also inclusive of your air leakage. So it's literally all the heat losses. It's the inverse of all the heat losses. So it's a way to compare, for example, the 2021 ICC and the 2024 ICC, they changed some parameters. In the 2021, they upped the R value of the ceiling for, for some climate zone to R60. And in the 2024 draft uh, that I was working off of, they reversed that to the R49, but they made some stricter requirements in terms of ACH50. And so you cannot really compare them apples to apples unless you go for the inclusive R value. So that is why I, I made up that parameter because I was trying to compare that ability to, for the building to the main constant. Okay, so we have long-term durability. I wanted to go back real quick about the condensation example. Yep. You said that the code does a good job of condensation that might build up inside the building cavity, but not on the interior surface. Correct. How does Passive House take that into account? So Passive House, uh, and this is a little bit of a distinction between how the industry does this. I'm talking about condensation on a window glass edge, for example. Okay. Okay. And this, the same principle is applied to, hey, I have a big beam, big steel beam going from inside the house to the outside. How do we assess the risk for condensation? Now, Passive House uses the temperature factor, which is a analysis based on ISO standard 13,788, which mm -hmm. for PHI applied to the entire building envelope. Fuse allows for a couple of quasi uh, analysis like that. For example, FUSE allows for the NFRC condensation resistance or condensation index, as well as the AMA standard 1500-03, which are kind of like gray areas because they don't really address the specific risk for condensation. So okay. I can expand on that, but it's a little bit more complicated. Okay, well, that, that makes sense. It, dealing with surface temperatures of the building thermal envelope, and Correct. I'm guessing also the thermal bridging uh, components that would deal with that surface temperature. Uh, Correct, yeah. Okay. Okay, so the next part we wanna kind of delve into is the healthy part of it. 
I think you made a statement in the summary that passive house hands down is uh, creating more healthy buildings than the minimum code buildings and even than Energy Star and the DOE Zero Energy Ready Home programs. And I'm trying to understand how, how that's true because when you look at the passive house standards, it seems to only address ventilation and house tightness. And I guess, I guess moisture components mm -hmm. of it. Whereas some, especially uh, the, the DOE program with the indoor air quality package or the indoor air plus package addresses a lot of other issues associated with indoor air quality. So can you explain how you evaluated the programs with regards to health? Yes, and thank you for this. This is a great question. Taking a step back, this study is comparing different metrics, energy versus health versus durability versus, and you cannot add two years of durability to five kilowatt hours of energy. It just, you cannot do that. Okay. So I made up a scoring system. I said, oh, there's a total of 100 points on the table, and I just made it up to try to be consistent throughout. And I divided these 100 points into five categories, comfort, indoor quality, durability and resilience, energy, and, and body carbon. And to each, I assigned 20 points. And within each parameters, talking about air quality because you asked, I identified a few parameters, air tightness, filtration, the indoor plus was its own category. And I divided those 20 points across these evenly because, you know, I think indoor plus has some great requirements in terms of VOCs and pest control, which you cannot add or subtract from the ACH50 or the filtration grade. So there was some uh, decisions that I made in terms of trying to have a fair evaluation. So for example, in the indoor plus, I gave them a certain amount of points and PHI scored, sorry, Passivout scored zero because it does not require that. So it was a way to acknowledge that no standard is perfect. Uh, for example, when it comes to embodied carbon, I made up two parameters within the embodied carbon. One is reduction of embodied carbon, and the second one was resource efficiency. So it will be 10 points each because embodied carbon as a chapter would have 20 points of the 100 that we started off with. And none of these standards address uh, embodied carbon. So each of these standards achieved zero <laughs> yeah. for, that, for that part, you know. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So they don't address embodied carbon, but do they address the other carbon? I'm, I'm spacing on the name of the oh, other carbon. Operational carbon? Operational carbon, yes. Uh, they do in that they address operational energy, but operational energy is its own energy chapter, slice of the pie. So that is, I, I address that as operational energy, and I did... A, an analysis that that was one of the parts that I learned the most about is comparing the energy operational energy to operate a building a house compared to charging electric vehicles you know uh, last year that is when the study was published just a few months before the study was published actually published a new standard for uh, zero energy and zero carbon buildings I think it's I believe it is standard actually 228 and they include the ev charging at the building uh whereas the previous definition from the doe of what a uh, net zero building is did not so that was a significant change i think in in identifying the boundary of the system we are trying to assess okay so there appear to be some significant challenge that buildings are facing in delivering healthy, resilient buildings. Uh, what were some of the challenges that you encountered in these different standards and programs? 
big picture, I think there's a unhealthy habit of uh, sticking to the prescriptive approach. And this, this may be my background. I was born and raised in Italy and we practiced architecture for almost 10 years before moving the company to the US. But there is no prescriptive code compliance in Europe, uh, period. So you, are, you have certain goals that are, you have to meet with your building. The performance-based approach leaves you the freedom of insulate your ceiling more than your walls or whatever you may choose but it, it, it forces you to have a more holistic approach to the building as a whole. So in my opinion, the, one of the biggest downsides that we need to address in the US is we look at the individual pieces. We don't look at how the building performs as a whole. You know, we, I always compare it to cars and we may have the best cars, the, the best tires for a car and they are for a off-road, four-wheel drive, we may have the best body, which is of a Ferrari sports car, and we may have the best engine that is a utility uh, car engine. And in, in itself, each piece may be awesome, but once you put them together, it becomes a hybrid that does not really work well, you know? Yeah, so that, in my opinion, that is the biggest and most common downside of uh, building standards. Yeah, I think you summarized that really well in the, uh summary of, of the study where you said uh, probably one of the greatest challenges the American construction industry faces is to start setting specific goals to know how a building performs. That is, instead of setting prescriptive requirements for individual building components. Yes, that, that, I think that really summarizes what you were just saying there well. The other thing that you point out is challenging for the construction industry in the United States is this move to electrification. And mm -hmm. you state that it uh, poses some serious challenges and potentially risks for us. And can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, electrification is awesome because if you think of, uh, it's the universal energy vector. It allows us to use renewable energy pretty well. It also has some significant challenges at multiple, at multiple levels. Electricity is expensive. Um, electricity today is far from being clean. Like we don't see the emissions of the coal plant, but there is a coal plant somewhere burning coal so that we can charge our phone. So there is an impression of, oh, I'm being clean, but actually it's a perception, it's not a reality today. Today, we, the, our grid wastes about two units of energy for every single unit of energy that we use. So if you think about charging your phone, you are charging three phones at the same time. Yeah. So that is, it is far from clean today. And if you think about uh, switching buildings to being all electric, that is awesome. But if you have a not well insulated building, and if you're running a heat pump, that it's a big lift for the heat pump. It's harder to get the heat pump sized properly. And if the heat pump fails, to have an all electric backup electric resistance, that's very expensive and, and extremely energy intensive, as opposed to, uh, I don't want to promote a gas furnace, but you know, we need to, in order to make electrification work, we need to make our buildings a lot more energy efficient. If you look at just the building, if you take a step back and look at how the industry is evolving, there's another very large elephant at the table of electrification wanting to eat a lot, and that is vehicles. So 10 years from now, electric vehicles are gonna be one of the major eaters at the table of electricity, so to speak. And if, if we push buildings to have passive house level efficiency, we can free up the amount of energy to charge two electric vehicles for every home. So it, it's amazing how much we can do by requiring buildings to be better in terms of bonds, in terms of insulation and air tightness. You make me think that potentially these standards are really only focusing on new construction, I guess, uh, because there seems to be a 
a good argument for having gas backup, you know, potentially moving to a heat pump in an existing home, but having gas backup uh, in that home as well. So with regards to your study, did you look at new buildings versus existing buildings? Because the, the energy code, the IECC, really is a code for both new and existing buildings. Energy Star isn't so much. Passive House, I think, has some existing building uh, components. So this is a great question. In defining this study, we had to have a pool of projects, just a sheer number of projects, to be large enough to have to be statistically relevant. 50 is the lowest I could there. And we do have passive house retrofit projects. We don't have 50 of them, to be honest. And we, for example, we have single family home projects being following the NLFIT standard. It is the PHI's passive house standard for retrofits. I think FUSE has revived as a similar standard. For this study, we also left commercial buildings out, you know, just because we had we had to have a pool of project that was consistent enough and large enough to be statistically relevant. So it was a decision in the architecture of the study to leave them out. Now, Passivos NFIT uh, project, you can reduce the need for heating and cooling by 90, 95%. You know, and there are different strategies where you can do a step-by-step -step retrofit and you can build that into the model and you can have an NFIT, um, passive house NFIT plan so that you can decide, oh, my siding got damaged, so I'm going to add exterior insulation to my walls now, but my roof is fine, so I'm not gonna touch it now. I may touch it five years down the line. So there is this, I think existing buildings have this added potential of doing step by step uh, that is that makes it more affordable okay uh, before we leave electrification challenges uh, one of the statements you made in the summary is that uh, the economy is at a greater risk of failure when we start moving towards electrification can you expound on that a little bit yes uh, we are we have different industries converging onto one single vector, electricity. It's, it is one basket and we have multiple industries putting our eggs each in the basket of, you know, call it cars, call it buildings, call it something else, but it is, it, it gives less resiliency to the system, to our economy as a system because you know it, it causes a bottleneck and whenever we have a, a bottleneck that is a weak point so it, it was more for my macro uh look at the economy that you know i wanted to call it out okay uh it makes me think that we potentially need some bridge technologies uh to carry us through like in the auto industry we have hybrid cars so we have the ability to uh, make that transition a little bit longer to all electric vehicles. In homes, I guess we have that ability with uh, dual fuel heating and cooling systems, but uh, maybe not in other, other areas. So something that is on a theoretical level, at least from what I know, that PHI, PHI is the International Passive Institute, has been working on is the idea of seasonal energy storage. And short-term storage like a battery has a lot of losses so you cannot charge your battery in the summer and then expect it to be charged in the winter time it's not efficient enough yet and what they what they are theorizing is to synthesize methane as a gas in the summertime and then use it in the winter time so that would allow to us to have more stock of energy not not in form of battery that could make the the grid more resilient, but that is, it it becomes above my pay grade, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this might go beyond your study, but it seems like we might be trading one climate 
environmental catastrophe for another potential climate or environmental catastrophe uh, as we move towards electrification because we're you know we're building we're digging up and mining all of these heavy metals for batteries mm-hmm. uh, we're doing all all kinds of things to our environment in reaction to what we've already done to our environment and not necessarily thinking about the the long-term consequences of those things 100% and one thing about that I love about passive house is that it uses simple technology like if you keep it dry insulation is proven to last 50 years plus as opposed to a pv panel or a battery that needs to be replaced within 15 to 20 years so mm-hmm. to me the big picture is you're building something that is dumber and simpler and can outlive this smart it's not as sexy it's not as sexy as the Tesla power wall. It's not as you cannot brag as much about the PV panels that your neighbor has on the roof, but it is potentially a lot lower in body carbon, a lot longer lifetime. So that is one of the reasons I, as an architect, care a lot more about the bones of the building because if those need less energy, then yeah, we, we are good. But I agree with you. We are trying to like fix a current problem and creating a future problem 100%. Yeah. 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 One of the things you you say and maybe this leads into your what you just said leads into this is that codes are are failing to deliver resilient healthy buildings. And then you also say well in reality Energy Star and the DOE zero energy ready homes are also failing to deliver better buildings. Tell us why you think that. Well, I currently live in a house that was built less than 10 years ago. If I want to have high indoor air quality, it will be thousands of dollars to implement an, an, a fresher ventilation system. I, because of what I do, I have a CO2 monitor. We are constantly above 2000, constantly, unless we open the windows. Radon, I had a sensor on my daughter's bed through the roof. And I went into the crawl space. I had to air seal that because the vapor belly was torn up and all of that. Particular matter, uh, even if the hood is going when we're cooking, it go, particular matter which causes cancer goes to the roof. And the building is leaky. This is not an issue of the building being too airtight. This is probably higher than 3ACH50. But whenever I see, I have a weather station, whenever I record high particular metadata from the outside, same goes to the inside. So in terms of being healthy, this building is not healthy. There's no, it would take thousands of dollars to have this code compliant building become actually, uh, to actually have high indoor quality. And the same issues I've seen in reviewing Energy Star and in reviewing uh, DOE Zero Energy Ready, I don't know to what degree, 20%, I don't know. I don't know percentages, but today the technology is there to have and measure higher standards for buildings to be comfortable and be uh, healthy compared to what the code minimum requires. So that that is kind of the background of that statement. I wonder if you're really potentially saying that enforcement and adoption of the energy codes, the IECC, is the issue, not the actual written standard itself, because the the standard does require a certain level of house tightness. It does require whole house controlled mechanical ventilation as well as spot ventilation. In some jurisdictions, it requires radon mitigation systems. Uh, it's it's unfortunately it's part of the pen, appendix rather than the mandatory requirement. Uh, in the IRC, but we are seeing that these things aren't getting enforced well. So you get a house that doesn't perform. Yeah, so that is, you know, there's things like home uh, home rule state and uh, adoption and amendment on the code that is, you know, it becomes political real quick. So yeah, the wording may need to be corrected there, but we try to, now we use this 
these examples to teach builders and how to promote better construction practices with their clients. And this is measured data from their buildings. You know, it's not theoretical. Yeah. So I guess I wonder how you can lump in uh, specifically the DOE Zero Energy Ready Home Program into the, into a statement that's saying that it's uh, not able, it's failing to deliver better buildings because they, you know, they specifically do have whole house control mechanical ventilation. It has adopted the indoor air plus program with radon and other mitigating so, sources and its efficiency, especially version two is, is I think pretty significantly better than uh, the base codes. It is. And it isn't. Uh, that statement is a bit generic, I admit, because it lumps in indoor quality and thermal comfort. In, in the evaluation of thermal comfort, going back to ASHRAE standard 55, there's a whole part of radiant temperature and avoidance of downdraft, which we can calculate backward from the U value of the windows. And the DOE zero energy ready has uh, less stringent requirements for Windows than even Energy Star. So it's it's more of the 2021 code uh, with heat pump and other parameters. But with regards to thermal comfort, DOE follows the IECC. Uh, in terms of the Energy Star, maybe because they certify Windows, they have a little bit more stringent requirements. So that statement. Uh, encloses both indoor quality and thermal comfort. And on the thermal comfort, both Energy Star and DOE don't shine compared to the base of the IECC. Okay. I think I'm understanding that when you looked at Energy Star and the DOE Zero Energy Home, you maybe looked at the reference design standard? Yes. Yep. Okay. Because there's also a component of each of those programs that make you pre-qualify the house for compliance with the program based off of doing a HERS energy rating energy analysis. Okay. And one of the things we find is that the reference home minimum requirements often aren't enough to achieve that HERS threshold that you have to achieve per specific model that you're you're working on or specific home that you're working yeah, on. And that is uh, one of the limitations of the study. We, st we stuck with PHPP and for thermal comfort, we were looking at uh, the U-value requirements. We're assuming that if the standard had some performance-based requirements, they could be made up elsewhere. So that was specifically only looking at the U-value of the windows. Okay. Well, the summary of the study basically concludes that hands down, passive house buildings are more efficient. They reduce heating and cooling loads, have lower energy use intensity, and basically from every metric is, is a better standard to work from. So in your opinion, is passive house really the only way forward? Um, not necessarily. In fact, we model a new project a week in average. And of those four out of five wants to use the science of passive house and the energy modeling without any actual goal or desire to actually certify or to meet the standard. It's more of a desire to have a structure to make informed decisions. So we, and in the last project where we recommend not to pursue passive house because of orientation, form factor, a number of reasons. But I think it's the science of passive house that we recommend using because that, that is a way that you can use to make informed decisions as a builder, as an architect, or as a, as a owner, because otherwise you're left guessing. Uh, you know, on YouTube and Instagram, there's a lot of like, better than code building standards and once you once you move away from the code minimum you are left floating among a cloud of decisions to make how much to insulate what kind of performance of windows you need what is your target is 50 it's, it's very 
foggy and, and dark, uh, uh, difficult to navigate. So we use the science of passivals to provide a handrail. As I said, like four out of five projects that we work on, they don't want to certify, they want to have that handrail and make their own decisions based on science. So it's the science yeah. that I think is what, what we want to use. Yeah. And if we move to more performance-based standards and codes, that would give us that ability. One of the things that I, statements that I kind of have stolen from you is <laughs> that, and adapted, I guess, because I say, now I say energy, any, any energy model, even if it's a limited energy model, like a ResCheck mm -hmm. uh, energy model or a sophisticated energy model, like passive house planning package, uh, it gives you the ability to fail quickly and succeed mm -hmm. fast, which is what really came from from your statement. And yeah, even even in the section where we talk about embodied carbon, uh, we gave like zero point for embodied carbon reduction requirements because none of the twelve standards that we addressed has requirements there. But we gave brownie points, so to speak, to the ones that are performance based to all of them, including Energy Star and DOE, because they give you the ability to make choices based on data. So you can you can actually see the trade-off that you're making in the model, and if you want to use insulation A versus insulation B. To that extent, um, something that I was, in, I was surprised by, but I was comparing the PHI low energy building passive standard with the fuse prescriptive passive standard, and one is performance-based and one is prescriptive. And to get to the same energy performance, the performance-based one ended up being cheaper, including the cost that we charged for the actual modeling. So it's kind of like when you're getting that close to zero energy consumption, every single detail matters. Even just the coating on the glass, which has basically no cost added to the just selecting which one, has a dramatic impact more so than adding a, an R10 or R20 to your ceiling. So to me, that is, it's like showing how the whole industry has to change the paradigm because you can be cheaper and more efficient at the same time. One of the impacts of increased performance standards is the need to execute the construction and how you're putting the assemblies together in a much better way. How do you think we can train our construction industry to actually build houses that won't fail because we move to a more performance rigorous standard? Well, to take a step back, EMU started as an architectural practice and we switched to training builders because we had such a hard time having our details implemented. So we literally changed jobs. On one side, training is key. And the other side, simplify and standardize. One bad habit that the design world has, and I, I belong to that part, is the intention to reinvent the wheel and reinvent and tweak the details at every single new project. And that becomes extremely cumbersome in terms of design, but also in terms of implementation. So something that we try to, to promote as EMU to, in our project is use those standardized details that can be, that the, the clues can be trained on using common practices. Passive House at the end of the day is like adding 5% to the uh, scope of a good builder. If a, if a good builder, good builder and a good crew care, then they are 95%. You know, if they don't, you can spend all the money in the world. They're not gonna care. So, training and simplified simplified standard approach. So, are you doing any architecture at this point, other than my own house? <laughs> <laughs> now, no. as much as I love to design buildings, that is not what we want to do. Like we. We had a decision, like back in 2015, we stopped and we looked at what we were doing. And we thought, we are doing a few possible, we are designing a few possible house projects at the time. Are we doing enough? And the answer we gave ourselves at the time was no. So that is when we decided to switch to education to have a bigger impact. And in fact, 
now we are looking at scaling, we are looking at licensing our curriculum to local schools to improve the program. But as far as designing buildings, I'm designing my own house, but that's about it's it's too much <laughs> too much work. Yeah. 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 I wonder about builders and designers and how they have the ability to in essence toll the line with the customer that they're working with in that almost every project comes down to a point where you have to value engineer something out mm -hmm. of it and to, in today's world we seem to value engineer out the assemblies and the assembly details the r values and whatnot instead instead of the aesthetic uh, components of of the house do you have any suggestions on how we address that that is a great question in my opinion the architectural design and profession is lacking values right now in that if you look at the architect my major in college graduated was architectural theory not building mm -hmm. science so it was yeah. about history and theory but we have in my opinion we have a we see a void of goals leading to aesthetics being the primary driver for a lot of projects not all of them and that leads to high costs and projects that are honestly very difficult to work with from a optimization point of view as well as passive hours and energy so yeah. i think i think having this information educating the architects is key as well as the builder the builders is key because they build the building but if the design starts off on the wrong foot it's it's an uphill battle and it's not going to be cost effective Do you have any thoughts on how we can address these current building standards and improve them? Because I I don't necessarily see Passive House as coming in and becoming the mainstream building standard that is going to work across the country. So we have to improve the IACC, Energy Star, DOE yeah. Zero Energy Ready. To me, the and it's it's you know it's it's a significant industry change moving away from the prescriptive model and setting goals whichever they are can be super low but at least meeting them and verifying them but moving away from the checklist and towards actual goals uh, that to me is requires political will requires decades of training of the whole industry so it's not something that it can be done tomorrow. I don't expect that to be done tomorrow, but it, it's a direction. It's a clear direction. What I, what I see lacking in the IECC, which is basically the, the base code for most of the country, is kind of a lack of direction. That is, you know, when I was evaluating the, the draft for the 2024 update, it was like, this is the same stuff, <laughs> you know? and it. From a building standard development point of view, if it is the same stuff, you you are kind of putting yourself outside the market. So you're making yourself obsolete intentionally or, or not. But that is what I see code ending up, you know. So, but it, it needs to come with some political will. And maybe, say, the state of Colorado adopts the 2024 only the performance based one. And that is a political choice, of course, but you know, it's it's setting goals can be low. Like I'm not saying to run the marathon, run two blocks, but it, you know, yeah. measure the two blocks. It's not like because you wear your shoes and you have your outfit, then you have the two checks and you're done. You know, have them run two blocks, and that's a starting point. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on in that. There are a number of jurisdictions and municipalities across the country that want to go far beyond where the IECC is is at, and they're they're seeking ways to do that. And Massachusetts, you know, part of what they've sought out is passive house, and they're figuring out how to bring that into their code world. Uh, it seems like there still needs to be some integration with these standards with the true building side of the codes 
the IRC, the International Residential Code or International Building Code. Do you see difficulties with that type of integration if we move to a performance-based? I honestly don't. We use PHPP even in, even with projects that don't need, don't want to be certified. PHPP is Passive House Planning Package is the energy modeling software of Passive House International, and we have submitted that modeling to rural Idaho, Wyoming, like rural places that have never seen that before. I think even just looking beyond the cover is very straightforward to see that it's a very methodic and detailed analysis. And so knocking on wood in six or seven years of doing this, we have not get, gotten a single pushback, maybe because they just put it on a, in a drawer and they move forward with their lives. But it's so far beyond code minimum that it's very easy for a municipality to accept it. I guess I'm curious about the constructability, going, kind of going back to that. Uh, the IRC, you know, has good guidance for how you how to actually build an assembly, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm guessing that because of the the sheer volume of insulation and and house tightness and whatnot, that the builders are taking it upon themselves to understand how to build the assembly so it's not going to fail in a, a few years. Whereas yeah. if it if it really becomes the performance standard for the United States or for the IECC, we're gonna have to do a lot of education with code officials to know what to look for and and whatnot. So I guess to end out here, if we do adopt a, a standard like passive house as more of a code, how how does enforcement of the actual construction details work in a passive house certification context? It's it's um, it's gonna take time to train the inspectors uh, and the code official to understand what works and what doesn't. Um, for example, for we do a lot of unvented roofs, unvented hot roofs, which don't make code and would fail code because code is based on the dew point method calculation, which dates to the 1930s and does not account for uh, vapor variable materials like a smart vapor retarder, for example. And so with every project we do that, we submit a report where the part about that loaf is one page and there's 20 pages of building science before that. Similarly for the inspections on site, if we do a double wall, it requires to have a partial inspection from the, from the city for the framing because then you covered it up with the netting or, or the insulation, so it's out of sequence. It does require a little bit of forethought in like, oh, I need to get my framing inspection before, like it, it's out of sequence, but it is all doable. At the end of the day, we're trying to do so much better than code minimum that it comes down to the personal relationship with the uh, inspector or the city to come out and, and check it out before it gets covered, you know? Yeah. It's all doable, it's, it's all, sorry, go ahead. I was just curious, is, Passive House, in the ha Passive House certification process, are they looking at those details as well, in essence, from a third-party inspection perspective? They do look at details. You need to, you are required to submit details for the building envelope, yes. There is a, there is a, I'm a, I'm a Passive House certifier myself, so when I say Joe, the consultant or the builder wants to certify, uh, they are required to submit details, design details, as well as the thermal analysis and photos and data sheets of the products and, and process that they did. Plus the contract, the, the GC is required to submit a binding statement that they abide by the details and the photos that they submitted. And is there inspection in the field as well? Not for BHI International. I think there is for Fuse, 
there is mandated blow-dot test and commissioning of the ERB system uh, for both because blow-dot test is key in the building durability as well as in the performance of the building as built. And then the ERV pressure system, it is a ducted system. So if the if air has a choice, they will go for the path of least resistance and the room down the hall will not get any ventilation. So you're required to do a design specification for the airflow supply in the turn and then verify and commission that that is actually what you get in the field. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate your time and uh, thanks so much for doing this study because it's it is a bit of a quagmire out there to understand how to evaluate yeah. all these different programs and and systems out there. So we really appreciate that. We'll put a link in the show notes to how to find the study and uh, you'll probably get some more questions out there. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to BuildCast, brought to you by Build Tank Inc. and our distribution partner, Construction Instruction. Make sure to follow and review BuildCast on your favorite podcast platform. To see show notes and to learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast webpage at buildtankinc.com. I hope you let me know if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better or would like to hear more about a specific topic or person. You can always reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks much to Ben Sound for our music and Ashley Owen for editing it. Until next time, thanks again and continue to think Zero to 360.